WBNE. Hello from elsewhere, I'm Casey. And I'm Valerie, and welcome to the podcast where we explore characters, themes, and symbolism in pop culture. This episode comes to you straight from a mad scientist's laboratory. Because today we're exploring Frankenstein narratives, specifically in Jurassic Park, The Prestige, and Avengers Age of Ultron. Let the record show that we had to record that like three times because apparently the word Avengers is not in Valerie's I kept spoken slurring repertoire. Avenger. Ad- you keep saying Avengers. I keep saying Avengers. <laughs> Avengers. The Avengers is like a advertising group. Like <laughs> yes. you know, there's an advertising firm out there that has a group of ad men, <laughs> and they call themselves the Avengers. I hope so. I have an all-important question for you that has nothing to do with advertising or Avengers. Well, maybe this all-important question comes from Sprinkle Wizard Shira in the Discord, one of our wizards in the Wizard Council. She asks. Which of the creations we're talking about today would we want to interact with? So, speaking of our creations, we've got the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. Yeah. We've got Ultron. We've got Ultron. From Age Mm -hmm. of Ultron. And we've got, who's the real monster, Casey, in The Prestige? Well, both of them. Angier or or Borden. (laughs) We've got Frankenstein's monster himself. I'd also say Vision is on that list. Ooh, yeah. In Age of Ultron. So which of those Frankenstein monsters that we're talking about today would you want to interact with? I mean, when I think Frankenstein monster, I tend to think negative. But we did, as we were watching the movie, we brought up a lot about Vision being a potential Frankenstein. Yeah. As far as, but I mean, he is a Frankenstein monster. Yes, he is. Because he is a creation. And we'll he get to that. He just didn't turn out bad. So I would pick to hang out with, with Vision. Vision then. Yeah. What would you chat about Vision what do you, would you chat with Vision about? I like the way he can read people. I think it'd be fun to be able to read people like he can. I don't know. I, I doubt that's something that he can teach me. But maybe he could impart a little bit of wisdom I'd like to learn. He could teach you like to walk through walls, maybe. I, I don't think that ability is going to come very naturally to me. I can barely walk past a wall without getting hurt. Let alone through one. Let alone through one. I would. I would pick the dinosaurs. Any of them. Even the mean ones. Even the mean ones? Even I, as they're trying to chase I'm, you? I mean... I, even as they're closer in the mirror than they may appear. If I could pick of dying from like mundane heart failure or eaten by a T-Rex, I'm definitely going to pick the T-Rex. So, <laughs> yeah. You want to go out with a bang. But really, I mean, ideally one of the more docile uh, Veggiesauruses. Yeah, you want to feel the chest of the yes. Triceratops? Yes, the, yeah, the Triceratops Specifically sure. that one. Yeah. Okay. Just right on the, the breathing yeah, belly, like Grant does. Yep, that's my answer now. That'd be fun. I'd even be cool with just riding on the prop that they used, whatever machine they used, right. that looks and feels like a dinosaur. You know, periodically this goes around the internet where they share a picture of Steven Spielberg. He sat in front of the Triceratops and someone had posted like um, something about poach, animal poaching and killing wild animals and then there's always the comments of like oh steven spielberg's the worst why would he do this like people don't look at take it seriously like people think it's an actual animal without looking oh wait it's a dinosaur right they think it's like a rhino right they think it's a rhinoceros (laughs) in in africa or something yeah you're like have you seen jurassic park i mean you should everyone should go watch jurassic park which is one of the things we're talking about today but what else are we talking about well we're going to take the themes of frankenstein the novel 
which you've been reading. Did you finish it? I didn't quite finish it, but I have been reading it. I've read it before. This was just a reread. It's one of my favorite novels. So I'm like ecstatic for this episode. I cannot wait. This is one I've been wanting to do for probably over a year. It's been on our ideas list for a while. Yeah. So I've been really excited for this one. Um, Because yeah, Frankenstein is one of my favorite novels and it's definitely had a impact in pop culture even in ways that we don't really think about and so we wanted to talk about three movies that don't necessarily seem like they're frankenstein stories but they are yes so we're going to take the themes from frankenstein and apply them look at them look at each movie through with those themes yeah so we're looking at jurassic park and the prestige and age of ultron avengers yeah and avengers yes (laughs) age of ultron and and yeah, we'll just get started. I think the way we structured it is we're going to talk about the uh, the scientist or experimenter first. And then for the second part, we'll talk about the monster or the creation. So we'll just dive right in because I have copious notes on this and we got to get going. We were talking before the podcast started about how I come well prepared to podcast. Yeah. Casey comes excessively prepared. I'm so sorry. To podcast. <laughs> I like that this I'm the about way you. That I am. <laughs> No, I have always liked this about you. I just don't hold myself to your standards. No, and no one should. I shouldn't <laughs> hold myself to my standards, but I do. So, yeah. with everything we have to say, where do you want to start, Casey? We're talking about scientists. Uh, let's just a little bit of background on Frankenstein, the scientist in Frankenstein, Frankenstein himself. So, Dr. Frank Victor Frankenstein heads to college in the novel and he starts he's very interested in like natural science and some of like the the fringe science that's been in the past and then modern day scientists have rejected um, modern day for the 1800s they've rejected it and even one of the professors that he goes to mocks him for for pursuing this this line of thought and line of experimentation Um, but he does it anyway and he starts to um, read and read and and study as much as he can from these fringe scientists and then he decides that he's going to try to preserve life in the form of and create life in the form of this uh, this monster, this creation by you know digging up body parts and and creating this new creature. He makes it like eight feet tall because it's easier to work with a large body for him, and um, he imbues it with life and is immediately terrified. And uh, that's sort of the background on on Victor Frankenstein. His curiosity gets away with him, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. And we'll we'll get into the sort of the hubris and the obsession of all of these characters because they all share that trait. That's what makes them Frankenstein stories. Um, But first, let's jump into Jurassic Park and Mr. John Hammond. One of the things I think is interesting, like you said, about all of them is the hubris is, and about Frankenstein in general, is that they are trying to take, as they take on the role of creator, um, they kind of are men taking on the role of God. But then their creatures always get beyond their control for sure which is interesting because then i wonder if you believe in god do you believe that men are beyond god's control right and that those are the kind of questions that i think frankenstein was was dealing with with um with what is the relationship between man and and a higher power and what is man's role and what is the higher power's role and what happens when man tries to imitate that higher power yeah for sure exactly so hammond has grand ideas he wants to bring back the dinosaur and he's smart enough to find people who are smart enough to figure out how to do it he's interesting because he's not the scientist himself yeah he's the funder of the scientists yeah like frankenstein is very much a solitary story it's it's mostly 
taking place from the perspective of, of Victor Frankenstein and uh, a little bit from the monster's perspective. But it's it's a very solitary type of story. Whereas in Jurassic Park, yeah, he's the idea, he's like the idea man. He started it all. It's all his responsibility and it's all his fault. But he's definitely not the one that put it all into into um, motion. Or he put it all into motion, but he's not the one that's sort of keeping the wheels turning. It's it's a it's a team effort. And yeah, would you say it's all his fault? Yeah, you don't think the scientists hold any responsibility? Um, for what they, I mean, they're getting paid to do it, but. I think they do. There comes to a point in your job where you're like, uh, is this yeah, I mean, something I, think I should be doing? I think, I'd say there's still personal responsibility with the scientists there. Yeah, I think anyone within a system, if they're sort Upholding of just going with that the, system. Yeah, then they're culpable in some way. Um, uh, but Hammond got it all started. And so I think he holds the, the mo- I think he holds the, the lion's share of the blame, I would say. I don't know. Do you disagree? I think that's fair. No, I just, you'd mentioned it's a good question, yeah. he holds the blame. And I was like, but yeah. the scientist. And even, um, what's his name? Malcolm. He says that, you know, the you guys, and he's talking about the scientists too. He's like, your scientists were so busy figuring out if they could, they never stopped to think if they should. He definitely blames Hammond, but he doesn't just blame Hammond. These, like you said, they're all culpable in the creation of these extinct creatures yeah so we've got so we've got dr frankenstein and we've got hammond who um sort of like i said he's the idea man he started this and then we can jump to age of ultron where we have tony stark tony stark he's an idea man like hammond but he can also push it through yeah he's much closer to frankenstein in that sense yes but he still can't do it entirely on his own he's got bruce banner helping him yeah it's not completely solitary for sure because again banner has to be culpable in this Oh, yeah. I think that the focus is definitely on Tony, but Banner's a really interesting character in Age of Ultron because he's not totally on board with Tony through a lot of it, but then in other aspects, he really is. And um, I think his curiosity gets the better of him. I think his... Where's the quote I wrote down? Yeah, so there's they Tony and Banner, they have a, a debate about AI, and Tony insists that this world, this vulnerable blue world needs Ultron. But Banner, I think Banner's on board because the the very phrase peace in our time would mean no more need for the Hulk. Yeah. So for him, it's a means to an end. Like if he doesn't have to be an Avenger anymore, if he doesn't have to bring out the green guy, and if there's peace in the world, like nothing to upset him, he would never be the Hulk again. And to him at this point... That is all he wants. He has not accepted the Hulk yet. Yeah, for sure. The whole, I think his whole, I think most of his story in Age of Ultron is him, you know, hating the Hulk and mm-hmm. hating that it's, um, he's been necessary to jump in and help the Avengers. I think he hates that, like you said. Yes. Like when Thor tells him, what does he say? Something about, you know, the, what does he say? Something about the depths of hell or, or, or there are men screaming oh, yeah. from, from being punished by the hulk or whatever and he's and he just kind of groans and it's like yeah. oh i don't want to be yeah. that person <laughs> someday when we talk jekyll and hyde stories we'll have to bring the hulk back up right which i mean i, I would say jekyll and hyde and frankenstein are very similar um it's just that still a creation frankenstein of and his monster are the same thing mm-hmm. are the same being which 
is kind of what we'll get into sides of a coin with the prestige um but uh but yeah i I think hulk as a character is very much a frankenstein type character or a jekyll and hyde character so in our third movie the prestige we have the great danton yeah angier angier is um, and also he's got a third name what is it i don't know the lord something at the end lord caldlow yeah yeah he's got like so many many names names. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah hugh jackman's character is angier and then we have um, we have Christian Bale's uh, character, Alfred Borden, um, and they are, this one's a little more subtly a Frankenstein narrative, and, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more, but uh, in terms of characters, they're both um, illusionists, magicians, and they're on a, a path to be the best magician that they can be, and then of course they end up competing with disastrous results and keep trying to one-up each other and and harm each other, and they're their acts or their experiments get more and more um, destructive and more and more uh, ethically gray and even villainous. Yeah, I would qualify them both as villains. At the beginning, you picture them as more, um, what would you call it? Like, again, like the others, like Hammond, like Dr. Frankenstein, they're they're of a curious nature. Mm -hmm. They're, um, and like Tony, they're kind of obsession-driven but as it goes on, they probably get the most, I see the least growth in either of them versus our other scientists. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, then let's go that, that direction. So uh, I think it's important to note that all of them have good intentions at the beginning. At the beginning. So let's talk about the intentions of each of these characters. Hammond thinks he's bringing back dinosaurs. Who doesn't want to experience dinosaurs, see dinosaurs, live with dinosaurs? He even says they'll have a coupon day or something. That's what the blood-sucking lawyer, lawyer yeah. says. But <laughs> he says that the park is for everyone, yeah. not the incredibly wealthy. Yeah. So I, I think I think Hammond, part of Hammond is he wants to make money off of it, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And it's not like a, a bad trait in the beginning I think he would be him. happy. Sorry, I talked to you. You're good. Go ahead. I think he would be happy if he made enough to just keep the park running. Yeah. And made enough to allow anyone who wants to see it to be able to come see it like yeah his drive is definitely Altruistic. mostly motivated by just wanting to entertain people mm-hmm. and to create something that's not an illusion um, right he wants it to be real unlike the flea circus right which i want to talk about illusions toward the end but um yeah but like the flea circus that he mentions and then well so dr frankenstein his intentions are he wants to um prolong life and push the science forward which is all good intentions and it doesn't start from a place of i'm going to create this monster that wreaks havoc across the genevan countryside you know it's uh it's just because he wants to create something new and to you know dabble in immortality in a way and of course the results are disastrous but um i think all of them wish to create something that will live beyond themselves not only in their because if their creation is that great they'll be remembered forever um like in the prestige you've got anger and um what's alfred's last name and alfred borden yeah borden you've got those two who their greatest desire is to be remembered as the greatest illusionist of all time like they want their creation to live beyond them to be something so memorable they'll never be forgotten and with the prestige um they don't you know like they don't start with those intentions to go down a dangerous destructive road like with angier where he says i don't want to kill doves he doesn't even want to kill doves and you look at him from that point versus 
the end of the movie with what happens at the end um, right it's almost night and day the direction he doesn't even gone. question it when he sees his first i'm assuming everybody's seen prestige yeah there will be prestige spoilers yes and that's one you shouldn't have spoiled it's more For fun sure. to go online yeah. you've probably seen jurassic park you've probably seen age of ultron if you haven't seen the prestige go watch it before yeah right now okay but at the very end when he sees his first clone self yeah clone self? I guess you can call it a clone yeah. clone uh doesn't even question it he's got the gun next to him and the other guy's gone dead done for he didn't even desire to like hold a conversation and like see if the other one actually had all of his same memories and i'd be totally curious he's not curious about the science of it which is interesting to me he's curious about the power of it well i think that's what separates the prestige from the others is that you know i mean hammond's not i guess i guess hammond hammond's not a scientist but I think he is interested in the science of it. Frankenstein's yes. obviously a scientist. Um, and then we have, you know, Tony and Bruce, they're both scientists and technologists. Whereas the prestige, it's it's really they're all about the illusion and about um the entertainment value of it. And so I think that sets them apart a little bit. And that's a good point. They he's not yeah, he's not interested in the in the how. He's just interested in the end result. Mm-hmm. Which is applause. That's all he cares about that's all he wants major applause he couldn't stand i guess this goes into his hubris but the reason why his tricks had to be better and better is he couldn't stand taking his applause from under the stage when his double got the applause up top so real quick before we get to hubris let's talk about then um the good intentions of tony and bruce which we already kind of mentioned bruce's yeah he wants to not need the hulk anymore but what are tony's tony's remembering when the Aliens came down of, on New York and the death and destruction they reached. And he's thinking that Ultron can be their their shield against the outside world. Yeah. And he also has that vision from Wanda as well of of a supposed future where all the Avengers have died and it's his fault because um, he hasn't protected the Earth. So he's, he's feeling this weight of, I need to pr- protect the entire Earth from some future alien invasion and um and ultron is his way of doing it ultron's clearly something that's been in his mind already like obviously post new york but even before wanda's vision because they say they talk about ultron him and bruce like they've talked about it before and he even says like ultron is a is a fantasy that he's had and now's his chance to sort of put it into play right bruce says that was a a fan a fantasy idea it was and tony's saying well with loki's staff mm-hmm. it's potentially possible yeah because it the the stone has some ai like properties and so he now's well, his chance the mind to stone. exactly now's his chance to meld the mind stone with his program for ultron which is what their their experiment starts doing is analyzing how best to do that and then it works and it's bad yes it does and it doesn't work but yeah, works, his, but not as intended. Right. And so, yeah, his intention is to put a suit of armor around the world. But of course, the, the truth is that Ultron doesn't, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't protect from the outside world, which is what I find interesting, is he decides that the humans are the problem. Tony's idea is to protect against potential alien mm-hmm. invasions. And Ultron goes right after the people because the people are the ones not creating the peace in our time. Tony has sort of input that main programming of peace and peace in our time. And, um, but Ultron looking at all the, everything that's happened in the history of earth realizes that earth 
thinks that everything is the human's fault and and the avengers have escalated that and so they're the first going to be the first to go yeah let's talk about hubris and obsession i love you mentioned it before but i love malcolm's dialogue with with hammond when they're sitting around the lunch table and uh can we mention how i don't i don't like that lunch room it's like oh, yeah. weird videos going on all around them and then yeah. like sometimes their faces are like half in the projector light you'd be, you'd be like staring at a projector while you're trying to eat not super conducive to a pleasant lunch no. it just seems uncomfortable anyway but, but malcolm on. you're fine malcolm tells hammond uh, he says, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. It didn't require any discipline to attain it. You read what others had done and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish some, something as fast as you could. Your And then a little bit later is when he says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. And I love this because it applies to all of these that we're talking about um you know it applies to to dr frankenstein who's reading that those fringe past scientists past works to um because he's still a very young man and a young learner and he's taking all that's been done and um, applying it to this creation this monster this beast um and then of course hammond because that's what uh, malcolm's talking about um and then tony like the and and bruce they're using the the mind stone which is that's them standing on the shoulders of of genius, so to speak, or, you know, the, the big bang that created this mind stone. So they're not, um, really taking responsibility for it. It's like something they found and they're using it now. And then Angier, he's using Tesla's machine. And, and like you said, he doesn't even care about the, the science of it. He just cares about what the end result's going to be. And, you know, Tesla even tells him, have you considered the cost? Have you considered what this is going to mean? So Tesla right there is saying what, what Malcolm's saying that have you thought about whether you should do this? not whether you can. So I just love that that line from Jurassic Park applies to all of this. Yes, each of them with their hubris have also had people straight up tell them, don't do this. Yeah. And they're each like, nah, I'm going to do it. I just, I know better. It'll be fine. It'll be just fine. I do whatever I want because it'll be great. It'll get me what I want. Right. Like Tony, he won't really listen to any of the, um, anything that Bruce says, like Bruce isn't really sure. I don't know. And so, and then he doesn't even bother to tell anyone else because he knows that they're going to object to it. Right. And then when Ultron does come around and they're all like, what the heck, Tony? Yeah. You didn't think to consider us or talk to us when you consult us. That's what I was looking for. You didn't think to consult us when we, about this new AI super robot you were going to create. That wasn't a conversation we should have had. And he's like, look, guys, it was for the best. Well, and he even deflects. They, They start confronting him and he's like, hey, I flew a nuke through a space hole to save New York. Like he's, he's right. totally bragging about a past thing as if that justifies what's mm-hmm. happening. And part of that is him trying to justify that, you know, aliens could come again. So that, that line kind of does both things at once. But I think a lot of it is him deflecting with, with overconfidence and, and pride and like, Hey, I did this awesome thing. So I'm, I'm, you know, trust me, but they shouldn't trust him. <laughs> yeah. Yep, and then like you mentioned, Angier has Tesla, the creator of the invention, who's like, burn it. Yeah. And then he gives him the creation, puts it in a box, and then the note in the box says, destroy it. And he's like, do you know the cost, what this will cost? Um, but he's still going to do it. Tesla is very interesting because he doesn't seem to have that 
same hubris. Like he has enough of it that he'll create this thing. Mm-hmm. And he's not entirely like a, a heroic character necessarily. Yeah, because he's very gray. He's one who could have destroyed the machine, but he kind of lets Angier decide for himself. Um, and I think part of him has that curiosity and and How far can in the, the science. science go? So he's like a, a little bit of a, a Dr. Frankenstein in a way mm-hmm. um, because he's created this thing and it's even using some of the the iconography of the lightning and whatnot um, that we sort of are familiar with being attached to Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he doesn't quite have that same level of, of obsession because he, I think he even has that line where he says, um, yeah, he says one day my obsessions will destroy me. Like he recognizes it in himself. And so he's able to rein himself in. Whereas Angier and Borden, they never rein themselves in. And maybe it's because of that competition. If it was just like a, solitary thing like it is with tesla they could i don't know but um they're interesting foils for each other between tesla and and angier specifically absolutely and then you've got dr hammond he's got malcolm a very strong opponent and then but even um dr grant and dr sattler both of them you know dr sattler's like well how how can we even possibly know how these creatures will react or yeah. or you know the plants that you've chosen you picked them because they're pretty but they're poisonous like these things that you haven't considered are potential dangers and dr hammond is or dr grant is like you know the science is moving so fast we're all still trying to catch up mm-hmm. and so both of them see potential dangers ahead and they're warning him against him but he's got that great line i brought you all here to defend me yeah and the only <laughs> one on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer well, I love that Hammond keeps throwing out the line, I spared, we spared no expense, as if that's yes. some sort of shield and um, that that money is keeping them safe because money bought everything. It bought the computers and the fences and the narrator, Richard Kiley, on the, in the car. And like, but none of that's going to save them right. when Nedry comes to play. So Yeah, I had that exact same thought and written down that he says it was such pride, like a lack of humility. He's like, yeah. spared no expense. And the idea, again, that, Throwing enough money at a problem will fix it or make it not be a problem in the first place. Like as humans, we're always assuming if I only had enough money, then I wouldn't have all these other concerns Yeah, and everything would be fine. But so that's a very human assumption of him that spared no expense means nothing can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love the characterization of Hammond because he's not portrayed in a villainous way. But if you're looking at all the things he does and says, he is the villain of the story but he, there's some, there's, you're, you feel a little bit sim- of sympathy for him, and I think part of it is just because it's so well acted. Would you so say well he's a? Would you say he's a bigger villain than Nedry? Yes. Ooh. I would. Interesting. I, I, yeah, I would. I think intention comes a lot to play with villains. Yeah. Hammond's intentions are still good. Yeah, but again, Nedry's he, are very selfish, base, yeah. just the money. Funny though that that becomes a problem. Right. That he can spare no expense on a million other things, but when Nedry asks for a raise, he won't. And therefore, he has cheaped out, as Nedry says, and that is what is his catalyst for his downfall of his park. Well, I don't even think that's Nedry being greedy either. I think that Hammond really has cheaped out on the most important part. He spared no, expen- no expense for stuff that doesn't matter Showy things. as much as... Let's not... You know, he just pays one guy to control the Still entire... The circus. All the systems of the park. Right. Um, and I also think Hammond's the villain because he, again, he has so many chances to 
shut it all down and just stop. And he constantly refuses to take responsibility. Like when he's eating ice cream with Sattler and he's like, well, the next time things will be correctable, you know, and next time everything will be perfect. And he says all major theme parks have delays. That's what he tells Malcolm. Uh Um, And (laughs) and and then even later when well, actually, it's at a similar point where Sattler is going to go down into the to the breakers and Hammond says, well, it should be me going. And at first you think, oh, he's finally taking responsibility for his mistakes. But no, he's not. It's just good old fashioned sexism. But right. as, as Statler says. Yeah. But like, yeah, he never. We can talk sexism resp- in, in survival right. situations when I get back. I love Sattler. We should mention Frankenstein's um, hubris. hubris. His is very interesting because um, I think he has the least amount of hubris of any of these in a way because he definitely does at the beginning. And a lot of it's coming from curiosity and obsession. Um, and that is sort of his downfall. And he, he, you know, he overreaches. But the second that the monster is created, he's like, whoa, this is stupid. I should not have done this. Of course, he doesn't take good responsibility in that he's like hiding this thing that he just made from like, not physically hiding it, but but he doesn't tell anyone about this thing that he's made and that people start dying and he knows it's the monster that's done it and he doesn't take responsibility like he should. But he's definitely like whining about how horrible how horrible of a person he is throughout the novel, which, you know, Hammond doesn't do that and, and Borden and Angier don't do that. And, and Tony definitely doesn't do that. But Right. They don't sit there thinking about, man, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I had a thought about how... so. D- Frank Victor Frankenstein. It's funny that we call him Doctor Frankenstein. He has yeah, he's no not, true. He's not even a doctor yet. That must be a. He's in college. That must be like a yeah, like a a pop cultural thing that just sort of happened. But he's not actually a doctor. Right. We consider yeah. him a mad scientist. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he's a doctor. Yeah. But he's not. So much of the Frankenstein stuff that we think about isn't really from the novel. Like you know, it's yes. alive and but the, the fact that he's a doctor adaptations and, of and the monster himself is very different in the book versus mm-hmm. most movie adaptations. But anyways, what were you? Yeah, so he himself is a young college student. And then you've got um, Angier and Borden, who are both young. They've got to be early 20s when the movie starts, at least. Maybe younger. They started out as apprentices. I mean, the one's married, the other one's not. But I mean, this is... What year is this, Casey? Uh, 1897. 1897. Okay. That's what it says in the journal. Well done. I was going to say late 1800s. Okay. And... Um, so, I mean, they could have easily been married at 18, 19, 20. Yeah. So they're still very young. And then you've, um, so those three, when you think about the development of the human mind and, and their inability to think about what the consequences of their actions will be still. Yeah. The executive functioning is still forming. Is still yeah. forming for them. Pretty close to form. They're getting there. It's like 25, right? Yeah, early 20s when it should be. So they're getting there. You can still give them a little bit of leeway for being stupid. Yeah. And pushing things too far. But eventually, Angier and Borden, like as the movie goes on, they should get some more wisdom here. I think they're much older than early 20s. Cut their losses. If they start out as like apprentices, I think they're early 20s. I think they're, they're feud. Because, I mean, the daughter's like eight by the end. No, she's only like she's five or like six. Six, okay. Yeah. But yeah, their, their yeah, I guess we feud just don't know. Yeah. goes on for like at least a decade. So I picture them going from like early 20s to like early 30s. Yeah. And anyway, so they're 
you can at least cut them a little bit of slack. You're like, oh, they're younger. And and Dr. Frankenstein, oh, he's younger. He's experimenting. He's, you know, mm-hmm. like he's just learning things. But then you've got like Dr. Hammond. Yeah. This guy should have several decades worth of wisdom mm. and experience about and, and have learned from his mistakes at this point. And Tony, too. Tony's somewhere in the middle there. He's in his 40s. 40s or 50s, probably. <laughs> I mean, I think Robert Downey Jr. is in his 50s. Mm-hmm. Tony Stark might be in his... I think the same age, probably. 40s? Yeah. Anyways. Um, but yeah, so you think about these older gentlemen. You're like, you learned nothing in your life? Or is that the hubris? Like, their inability to see their own faults. Yeah. Anyways, just a thought I had. Um, a couple more thoughts real quick about Frankenstein and his um, uh, his obsession. And he's totally aware, even though he doesn't really start to really deeply feel the regret until the monster has been created. Um, he mentions as he's sort of on this path to creation how he should just stop. Um, he says, I could not tear my thoughts from my employment, loathsome in itself. Uh, but which had taken an irresistible hold of my imagination. So he already realizes, like, this is a loathsome pursuit. I should just stop now. Um, and then later he, you know, he says, you know, cursed be the day which, um, which you first saw light. He tells the the monster when they're they're speaking. You know, and then he says, um, cursed, although I curse myself, be the hands that formed you. So, um, and those are just two examples. But throughout, he's constantly talking about how monstrous he is. I think there's just a lot more regret coming from him than from the other characters. It's interesting that we call them scientists when I think you could just as easily call them artists. The idea, like that drive to create something yeah, is very much an artistic quality. For sure. And that obsession with getting something right. Like I just finished reading an Agatha Christie novel today and one of the characters, she's a sculptor and the way she describes it is so similar to what you said to Frankenstein there. Like when she's in the middle, when she's in the pursuit of creating, of sculpting this figure, she can think of nothing else. Like it is a completely obsessive, has to be finished before she can go on to any other pursuit kind of a thing. Um, so I think it's very interesting that they are similar qualities there between artists and scientists. Yeah, there's probably more in common between artists and scientists than we ever give credit and i think you could that's part of like the artistry of hammond as well mm, yeah he's a showman the illusionists are both showmen so while there is some science behind what they do or mechanics at least yeah. a lot of mechanics behind what they do they are artists in a great sense right. too i'd say they're more artists because like like cutter and tesla they're the they're the builders the the scientists right. versus Angier and borden are the are the showmen yeah tony stark is both yes yeah He's definitely a, a meeting of showman scientist. I mean, Hammond. you go back to the very first Iron Man movie. He's like Angier under the stage who can't stand the applause being given to somebody else. Mm. Because at the end, he's like, I'm Iron Man. Yeah. Like, he wants it known that this is him. That's his creation, his thing. I'm Iron Man. So you're saying the Iron Man suit is a Frankenstein's monster? I would say so. <laughs> I love that. But yeah, the, just that idea that they're all artists, showmen, scientists. Do you ever think that some people just have too much vitality for life? <laughs> <laughs> they should they should rein it in just a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. I'm usually more just jealous. <laughs> I often look at them and I'm like, eh, you should have reined it in, guys. But then again, I'm not the kind of person who's 
it's not that I'm not ambitious and I am creative and I like doing things, but as far as like being known as the best for something or, or the desire to create something that will live beyond myself, like those are not qualities that I have, which is probably why I don't understand them or, or sympathize with them. Like throughout the, like the prestige, the first time I watched it when we were like early married, what year did this movie come out? Oh, six, I believe. Yeah. I feel like I didn't see it till after we were married. Yeah. Maybe I saw it as a teenager. I don't remember. But when I first saw the movie, it just bugged me because of like the few scenes that are like intense where like the wife drowns, they cut the fingers off like that one. Mm -hmm. I still didn't watch that this time. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there are a few scenes that got me and I was like, I don't like this movie. Watching it this time, my biggest thing was annoyance. I was like, these guys are so dumb. <laughs> like the way that they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and neither of them is willing to just uh, cut their losses and say, well, I gave it a good run. Let's pick up a new hobby. Like yeah. their rivalry and their willingness to destroy each other, especially when they could have been like the greatest duo of all time if they'd have put their minds together, but they can't get over the differences in the way it's escalated. And anyways, it just drove me nuts the entire movie. Like I didn't enjoy it because I was like, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand why they have that, that compulsion and that passion, but that is what makes them Dr. Frankenstein. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what I love about it is the, it's, it's, they're all, all of these, maybe a little bit less Age of Ultron, but most of them are all sort of morality tales of, um, you know, obsession and and the danger of how far it can go. Um, I li- that's your, what I like. Your about obsession it. will destroy you, as Tesla says. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of destroying, should we talk about the sort of where these scientists or experimenters where they end? So whether they get some sort of comeuppance or a, a downfall, because that's kind of what what the the Frankenstein story, that's sort of the template that it set was that these these characters should get some sort of comeuppance for for their overreaching and their overconfidence and pride. Yeah, remind me what happens to Dr. Frankenstein, to Victor Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein dies on a boat. So the whole story is a, a frame narrative. He um, right, he's up in like the ice. frozen in, a, in a, a boat that these ship people have pulled him aboard, and he recognizes that the captain has like this same obsession to reach as far north as he can. Um, and so he's telling the story to the ship's captain to sort of um, you know, as a morality tale to try to dissuade him from letting his obsession overtake him. Um, and Frankenstein dies on the boat and, and freezes and um, with the monster watching over him. And then um, the monster himself sort of floats off on an ice float to, to die because um, he just kind of lets himself die without, without Frankenstein there. Without Frankenstein, he has no hope. He wanted a, he wanted a friend, a mate, uh, something. Yeah, so there's the whole bride of Frankenstein and... and he convinces and threatens Dr. Frankenstein to create a, a female for him. And um, Frankenstein eventually decides it's a bad idea and, and is convinced that the monster is evil. And so um, Frankenstein stops the experiment and stops and, and destroys what he's created so far. Um, and then the monster's so mad. And yeah, so it, it the whole story is just this gradual downward spiral into madness and death and all started because of of the yeah the hubris and then we got uh hammond 
Jurassic Park. Which in the movie, he gets zero comeuppance. I'm assuming there's plenty of lawsuits that come at him from a... Mm -hmm. dead employees yeah it's interesting that because hammond has that line to nedry he says um he says i don't blame people for their mistakes but i do ask that they they pay for them but he never really pays for his much that we see Um, in the movie anyways yeah yeah like i mean obviously he has to shut down this park and he pays in the loss of this dream but it's not the same kind of um comeuppance that dr frankenstein gets and not necessarily that he should die but which is a difference because in the book, he does die, right? In the book, he dies by compies, the little monsters, or the little monsters, the little dinosaurs, which one of our Discordians reminded me of. the long grasses? Um, no, no that's that raptors. Second? No, but in the second movie or whatever, they like, There are compies. And they say, stay out of the long grasses because the compies are in no, there. No, the long grasses because of the raptors. I've only ever seen yeah. it like one other time. So. But um, they, but yeah, they did take that the other scene movies. from I've the book. I've seen Jurassic Park many, many, many They did take that scene from the book of the compies killing Hammond and put it in the in the second one there's that okay. one random guy that gets killed by the compies but um interesting though because we had talked about this an episode two ago or two ago how you thought that maybe because the raptors had imprinted on hammond that it was sort of foreshadowing for his death at the hands of the raptors right um but in an early draft of the screenplay for jurassic park the first movie he does die by raptors so they did have that thought and maybe imprinted on them as as a delicious meal oh that's what you meant (laughs) (laughs) no it just he didn't think of it that way but it clearly backfired yeah real quick i think i want to talk about because hammond decides that he's not going to endorse his own park like grant has that line i'm not going to endorse your park and hammond says neither am i i don't i still don't think that he feels a whole lot of guilt and remorse i think he feels sad that his park failed um to entertain people more so than all these people that have died yeah i mean it's hard to tell but that's why i think he's a villain in that case he is very similar to angier who at the end of the movie is all about you know his final 100 shows is all about bringing the greatest show ever to the people and again he feels zero remorse for the then i don't know if he actually makes it to the hundredth show before everything goes wrong and he frames Borden, or everything goes right for how many frames Borden? Yeah, because I think he planned the framing. Yes. Um, he would have just had to wait for his opportunity. Whenever Borden goes downstage, it's yeah. like, but how would he, yeah. Anyway, is that's the time when he's like, oh, time to cut my losses. Yeah. They think I died. And, uh, but anyways, that means that at the very least, there's like dozens of other murders on his hand of his own self in a way that he just feels zero remorse for. And then he eventually dies. At the hands of one of the Borden twins or brothers. Um, that's his comeuppance is much more similar to Dr. Frankenstein in that he dies. Right. Whereas do you feel like Borden would have... Did he deserve more comeuppance? Or is losing one of the twins enough? Or I don't... This calls into question... We can talk about Borden because we've talked a lot about Angier. And I think yes. it's because he feels much more akin to Dr. Frankenstein than Borden does. But with Borden, you've got the two brothers... Uh, Alfred and I mean we don't know but there's there's they're we were switching differentiated back and forth between, between Alfred and Freddy right and that Freddy is maybe slightly more obsessive it's hard to tell it's but really Freddy's the one tell. that it is in love me. with Scarlett Johansson and Alfred is the one that's in love with Sarah and has a child um yeah it kept me up last night after watching it trying to riddle out what scenes was what scene yeah. was Freddy and what was Alfred and and trying to figure out 
And I don't think you're ever supposed to How really they know interplayed, I know. 100%. It was just bugging me. <laughs> but you do know that the scenes where um, he is terrible towards Sarah, that that's not the one that loves Sarah. And so I think right. that's Those why you feel more sympathy for Alfred. And he's the one that does survive by the end and gets to be with his daughter. And so I yes. think that you feel a little better about him not getting like some sort of worse comeuppance or death. But at the same time, he did stand by and just let stuff happen in the name of living their act, you know? Yeah, the two brothers combine are our mad scientist Frankenstein showman. Yeah. And so they, together, I feel like the monster they created was their home lives. Mm. Like, the idea, like, uh, Borden even says, Alfred says that they each had half a life. And that was enough for them, but it's not enough for the the women that they loved. And so part of their comeuppance was also losing the women that they loved because they only gave half yeah. of themselves to to mm. them. And then we have Tony. Tony gets like zero comeuppance in this one. Yeah. It's like he, he creates Ultron. Everyone's mad at him. Mm-hmm. Um, you think it's headed towards that. And then, um, and then all the stuff happens with Vision and he decides to like make another experiment and most right. of them are mad at him again but then thor Basically, comes flying in redo everything thorn comes flying in and Im- imbues vision with light and his you know his hammer lightning and tells everyone hey tony was right and vision is a success and then it's like oh okay i guess we all and they tony do now. kind of question vision for a minute there and we can talk about him more with the monsters but yeah but yeah in general tony gets zero comeuppance i feel like it comes uh, in Civil War. Yeah, that's what I was is, say is, So that's maybe just a a fact that, you know, because Marvel is such a long-spanning mm-hmm. story yeah. that it comes into play later. Because in Civil War, he's feeling the regret of his actions. He's willing to um, be, what do you call it, you know, to sign the Sarkovia, whatever, what is it called? Sarkovia Accords. Accords, yeah. that's the word. And to kind of release a lot of the power that up to that point he really held on to he wants somebody to step in and tell him what he is and isn't allowed to do because he knows that sometimes he goes too far yeah exactly okay we ready to talk about the monsters themselves the creations Uh, i wanted to mention um you had mentioned this quote before of what dr sattler said in jurassic park and just like malcolm's line i think that her line really speaks to all of these stories when she says um, you know, she says, how could you ever, how could you ever assume that you can control, control it, meaning the creation? These are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. I think that applies to all of them. These monsters, these creations all defend themselves violently as necessary. The dinosaurs, 100%. You give the dinosaurs the most leeway, I think. Because oh yeah, they're the heroes of the story. <laughs> yeah, because they really are just... Uh, we consider them animals, so they act on animal instinct, mm-hmm. and so we don't question a motive in them. Yeah. Uh, then you have Ultron, who is just the results of his creator. Like he has a lot of what Tony put into him, mm-hmm. but he kind of has the worst of Tony. And he hates Tony for it. I think. Yes. Oh, I I had forgotten because it'd been a while since we watched this movie. I'd forgotten that that's the only reason that. Um, oh, what's his name? Claw. Ulysses Claw. Claw. Yeah, that Ulysses Claw loses his <laughs> arm is because he like he's like Tony Stark used to say that you remind me a lot of him or something, and he's like cuts off his arm like, and then he's like, oh sorry, that'll that'll be okay. But yeah, he 
he does not like being compared to his creator. He likes the idea. And that way he has his own hubris. Like he is the one and only pro, uh, you know, person that, or being that can solve all the problems of the world. Ultron's not a very sympathetic creation here. Right. Because um, he like immediately just kills Jarvis and then. And we love Jarvis. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, he's following his programming, just like the dinosaurs are following their instincts. But um, somehow we give it far less leeway. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure why. Like, um, and part of it's the movie itself. Like Grant in Jurassic Park says they're not, I think it's Grant that says it. They're not monsters. They're just animals. But yeah, Ultron, he's not very sympathetic. And, and they even say like Ultron can't tell the difference between destroying the world and saving it. Um, that, well, then they say, where do you think he learned that from Tony? Right. Um, another another connection um and and yeah ultron's like the main frankenstein's monster in the movie but this one and a lot of the other ones they have like these frankenstein monster narratives within the frankenstein monster narratives like um like the twins themselves they're their experiments yes i was and, thinking about that and strucker is is a you know is a an analog for dr frankenstein as well as foreshadowing tony's experimentation later um you and also then, have Veronica, which is supposed to be another problem-solving oh, solution to take care of the Hulk. If the like, Hulk Veronica, gets out of hand, who's Veronica? Yeah. I know. Yeah, they name <laughs> they name everything. Um, so they she's supposed to be another solution, but she ends up causing a lot of damage as well. Yeah, that's true. And then Jarvis. Yep. Jarvis, Jarvis in division. In division is the I find the most fascinating. Yeah. Because he's another potential terror like ultron but it he isn't and the question is why what are you know is it just the programming and protocols that jarvis has did they not give those to ultron is it i don't know somehow is it the the mind stone it's probably all these things it's mjolnir's lightning as well yeah which again that's very a very frankenstein um image mm -hmm. of the lightning going down into the body and and being the last step of raising it from raising it into life exactly so somehow he gets this the things work and he even has because when they um when dr cho is that her name yeah um when they give her or when she's you know creates the form using the mind stone um and they're starting to upload ultron's you know base subconscious into it and vision or not um not vision but wanda reads that subconscious she's like i can i can read him she couldn't read ultron in the in the robot body but she can read the what will become vision's body but at that point it has ultron's baseline subconscious and it's brutal it wants to destroy the world so how does vision not take on that baseline subconscious yeah i don't know i don't have the answer but i i I think you're right it is it is very interesting because it's the the one instance in all of these where the frankenstein's monster is successful turns Um, out really well (laughs) which maybe that sends a weird message because like tony here has a chance to you know he's like hammond he he has a next time to make it correctable but in this case it succeeds hammond doesn't really get a second chance and he shouldn't although i mean there's sequels but that's another story but um yeah i i don't know about vision he's 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 an an anomaly creature um as far as the monsters go and i think it's interesting that he owns it himself like he knows Um, because they're all discussing him and he's just standing there very calmly. The Avengers are trying to decide 
what are you? What is your purpose? You know, is this another Ultron? And he says, maybe I am a monster. I don't know if I'd realize if I was one. Like, he has this idea um, that he just is what he is, but he himself doesn't even fully understand what he is yet. He's still learning. And each of the monsters go through that kind of a... um, Like, Ultron says, you know, who am I or where Mm. am I? Like, at the very beginning of Mm -hmm. his, you know, being. Yeah. And Jarvis has that same moment of, like, trying to discover who they are and what their purpose is. Yeah. And Frankenstein's monster definitely goes through that. Exactly. Um, But I want to go back a second because it's interesting you said that that line about how Vision says, maybe I am a monster. Because as Tony and Bruce, I think it's when they're experimenting on, like, start trying to create vision and they even say like tony says we're mad scientists we're monsters um of course i think he says says, we've got to own it (laughs) yeah i think he's saying it kind of jokingly like um like who cares what anyone else thinks we're just gonna do whatever um i don't think he really thinks of himself as a monster because he hasn't come to that place of of um guilt yet that comes in civil war as we mentioned right um but just interesting how much uh, not super subtle callbacks to Frankenstein are in here about monsters. And the theme of monsters is super heavy in this, in Age of Ultron. Um, like even with like with Bruce and Nat and then Tony and, and, and Bruce as well and, and then Vision. But yeah, Vision is the anomaly. He's the, he's the outlier because he's the successful experiment here. I love that we have a, a clear indicator of um, that Vision is good. Because as they're all sitting there discussing it, and they're kind of get to a point where they're like, well, I guess we'll just kind of roll with it for now. Like, they seem to kind of be accepting him as a good guy. And then he just casually picks up Mjolnir and passes it to Thor. Mm -hmm. When earlier in the movie, we saw that nobody could do it. Although, I have theories about Cap. I was telling Casey this time, I was like, because Cap slides it across the table just a little bit. Yeah. And then I feel like he gives up way too easy. (laughs) Like, I feel like he knows that he could, but Cap is really great at not having hubris. Yeah. That's one of his strengths. And so he's very much like, I don't need to show off about that. Like, that's cool if I could, but I don't need it proven. He knows for himself. He knows for himself and that's enough, Um, which is, yeah, one of his strengths. But anyways, as soon as Vision picks that up, uh, it's the he is worthy thing. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they're like, "Oh, sweet, we can trust him." So uh, let's get going. As we've been talking about Vision, to me, he might be the closest to Frankenstein's monster himself because Frankenstein's monster is the most sympathetic character in the book, and he does horrible things. Like people say, um, you know, Doctor Frankenstein is the real villain, and we'll get to that. And I do think that that's true. I don't think that Frankenstein's monster is completely without any fault, but also he is acting on instinct just like the dinosaurs um for for him though for the for frankenstein's monster his instinct is to be good he's trying to learn and be good and be kind to people and everyone just hates him back because of his appearance um and you know there's a heavy theme of of um not judging the book by its cover and he says you know frankenstein's monster in the book talks about how if people would just listen to him and be nice to him and be kind to him he wouldn't be so evil and wouldn't seek revenge on people. And that's, I mean, that's a little bit of a twisted morality, but I think that it makes him very similar to Vision. And that when Vision is born, everyone kind of is suspicious, but they don't immediately start trying to like kill him. 
they slightly give him the benefit of the doubt. And um, so who knows? Maybe if they had, you know, attacked him and tried to kill him, he would have fought back. Maybe that's it. Maybe that that's what connects him the most to Frankenstein's monster is simply the way he's treated, you know, the golden rule, um, maybe golden rule in reverse a little bit, but the way he's treated, he decides to treat other other people. Well, I think the, with the monsters, you could bring up the argument of uh, nurture versus nature. Yeah. Like Frankenstein's monster says, if I had just been treated kindly, I think that's true of a lot of monsters that are created. The potential for creating monsters is in how you treat your creation. Often, if the, you know, if the creation is cre- treated kindly, mm-hmm. it has the potential at least to do better. Yeah. Well, we should talk about in the prestige how um you know angier is creating a new monster right that every performance is he's creating a new a copy of himself that itself yes. is a frankenstein's monster in that you know it's it's in his image yeah his is very interesting because he never gives his creations a chance to do anything yeah they both well even both copies because they are both angier both try to kill one another and just one is gonna like when they first when the experiment first works right um I don't know. The other, other one seems to immediately. Do you think he would have? I don't know. But which is which? That's the question. You know? He doesn't even know. Yeah. He says he, you know, is terrified every night. Will I be the one that dies or the one that lives? I don't like. Yeah, because they're both him, and it's kind mm-hmm. of a, it's a little bit of a existential mind yeah. trip. But they're both him, and one of them is going to die, and one is going to live. That raises a lot of questions, but I don't know. I find them interesting. Again, Angier's in. Uh, maybe the most brutal of the creators that we've talked about because he feels no remorse like we've talked about with some of the others but he doesn't just do this once he does it dozens of times it's like if hammond had created all these dinosaurs and as soon as they're like bigger or maybe even not as soon as they're babies and then he just kills them all like that's right like if his park was gonna be like dinosaur hunting park like it would be a you know (laughs) like raise them to be hunted kind of a feeling like that would be more like what angier does and then tony his creation is uh you know it's a robot it's not i mean it's an ai and that calls into other questions of what's alive and what's not but um biologically it's not a living being and so yeah i think the angier is the is the scariest and the most um the most villainous for sure but his his gets into the jekyll and hyde thing a little bit too because he is his own monster Yes. Um, he is he is both the the scientist and the monster here which i think is kind of your hinting of borden too like the two brothers are kind of jekyll and hyde or at least as far as how they view things um they're portrayed as jekyll and hyde when angier mentions reading the journal that he's a man divided some days he seems to love and admire his family and other days it feels like a prison and he wants freedom, which you later come to find out is two totally separate men who have chosen a single life together, which I don't know, Casey. What, what? Are, the, what are the odds that two twins would have the exact same goal and desire in, in this life to really put that much of themselves, of the passion of their lives on hold for this one aspiration of right. being the best illusionist? Where did this drive and obsession start? Because like with Hammond... We get his his little speech about how he had the the little he started the little flea circus and ever mm-hmm. since then he's been trying to create parks that um, are not illusions and with you know Frankenstein we get his whole backstory about why he wants to create life and and with um, with Tony we know his his intentions pretty well as we mentioned 
Um, and, and we know the intentions of Borden wanting to be the best magician as well as Angier, but we don't really know where the obsession started. Like I want, like you said, I want to see those twins as children. I what happened? That would be just as interesting of a story. If yeah. Not more so like the, the making of, <laughs> yeah, of Borden, of Alfred Borden. At what point do the two of you decide to move somewhere new? I mean, it takes, like there's always stories about twins switching places to like fool teachers or parents or whatever. Like it takes that to a whole new level Mm -hmm. when you just, the two twins are like what teenagers and they move somewhere new and then decide that Nana, we're just going to be one person. Like what drives that decision that you would choose to be one instead of an individual is super interesting. Yeah. But for them, the monster is obsession. The monster is dishonesty really to put it simply. And, and with Angier, it's also the monster's obsession as well as, um, you know, he's his own monster. And I think that that sort of trickles out to all these other stories that ultimately the scientist or experimenter is the real monster. As I mentioned, the dinosaurs aren't really at fault here. They're just going off of instinct. Hammond is the villain. Um, in, you know, in Frankenstein, it, it's, it's clear that the humans are more villainous than than uh, the monster itself. And Age of Ultron, a little bit less. I think Ultron is the villain. But but Tony is, you know, he acts in monstrous ways, I think, as we've shown. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting. My mind was going back to boarding because like I said, I can't stop thinking about the prestige, which I guess is the sign That's of a good thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but now I'm thinking about this, the scene where, because the two brothers are one, they recognize so much faster like Angier is like I I couldn't see it when they go to see the what do they call him the Chinaman who's doing a trick yeah and it's the goldfish bowl that's like heavy you know full of water you know so then you're and they can't uh, Angier can't figure out how he does it but because Borden recognizes himself and his Mm -hmm. own duplicity in this he can say that him acting like a cripple is the act yeah like that he would spend his whole life acting frail when he's really very strong to be able to pull off this best trick of his when i'm sure it's justifying his own monstrosity when he sees that he's like this guy he knows what's up he he knows what to do because like he knows he knows what it means to be a true show yeah what you sacrifice for your art which is something that borden brings up at the end when he you know is about to kill angier he's like you don't know real sacrifice which is exactly what angier thinks of borden you didn't know real sacrifice and they are two sides of one coin angier borden and the twin (laughs) (laughs) fallon um and fallon yeah like they are man could you imagine because in see again in my mind i was thinking of them as the two the two of them working together could have made a great act, but really it would be the three of them. The three of them together with all three of their minds working could have seriously created the best illusions of all times. Them plus Cutter. Like, wow, yeah. what a team. Instead, they're stupid and destructive. That's why it's a delightful tragedy. It's so good. <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever call a tragedy delightful. I like tragedies. They're fun. They annoy me. But all of these are, I mean... Well, okay, Age of Ultron's not so much a tragedy. Jurassic Park's not, but Frankenstein's mon- like Frankenstein is definitely a tragedy. Yes. Um, and and so is Prestige for sure. Exactly, and I can appreciate Frankenstein and Pre- and Prestige, but they still annoy me. You'd rather watch Jurassic Park or Age of Ultron? <laughs> Absolutely. I have some other thoughts that maybe didn't fit into these a little bit. Um, like Do it. Uh, Bring them up. that line, "Life finds a way." The 
ever famous line life finds a way from jurassic park i think that applies to all of the monsters too. yeah exactly like obviously it applies to the dinosaurs they they start to find a way to to breed and um they find a way to basically chase off the humans but then in in frankenstein the monster tries to live a normal life he wants to live a a normal human life the only thing that's keeping him from that is is the other humans judging him you know misunderstanding him especially at the beginning before he starts um you know killing little children but and then he's human enough that if he realizes you know if he just goes off alone he'll be terribly lonely he's got enough of that human characteristic in him that he just is like look just give me a mate we'll yeah. go off do our own thing he even says i'm going to run away to south america with this female <laughs> those poor south americans yeah well, he's like, I'm going to live in the you know jungles and eat berries is basically what he's suggesting. Right. Because, um, yeah, he just wants to live. He wants to live life. In a similar way, I was thinking about how Ultron is quick to want a, a form. Like he starts out as kind of this AI nebulous being, but he grabs the first form he can get, you know, the the broken robot body. Yeah. And then he gets a, a whole robot body. But that's still not good enough. It's so interesting that he doesn't, he hates being compared to his creator, yet he wants a human form like his creator. Um, so in, a, in some ways, Ultron is the Dr. Frankenstein of vision in kind of a, a role reversal there where the doctor has evil intentions, but then creates something good. Yeah. Again, monsters within monsters. Because mm-hmm. I think it's true in Jurassic Park that Nedry is um, Frankenstein's monster within the story too. Yes. Um, sort of created in quotes by by Hammond um, in that he, he gets his come up. Yeah. And it's because it's from his own creations. He created the computer system, but through his greed, he shuts it down. And because he shuts it down, he no longer it lets has the Dilophosaurus out and he dies. Yeah. Frankenstein within Frankenstein. But in that same vein of um, Age of Ultron, Vision is a bit like the Bride of Frankenstein. There we go. Does that make Ned- Nedry the Bride of Frankenstein? Or the <laughs> Dilophosaurus? I don't know. All of these stories have a little bit of an interplay between like respectful and respect and respectable science versus fringe experimentation. That's Very important, true. To, important to note. We'll get into all of them, but... Um, kind of along that same lines... So Dr. Hammond, I just have it here in quotes under Jurassic Park, but somebody says, I think it's Hammond, says that creation is an act of sheer will. Like the idea that if you have enough obsession, that sheer will to put into something, you can make it happen. Yeah. Be it good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. Like He's not wrong. They all do create these things. It just yes. has... Out of sheer will. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of these have really interesting allusions allusions with an a um like alluding to other stories and and tales like you know frankenstein itself uh, the the subtitle is the modern prometheus prometheus being the one who took fire and and gave it to humans you know took took something fire being representative of knowledge or um it was the power of the gods yeah which is um i mean it's very fitting for what happens in frankenstein with with him sort of um getting too close to that knowledge that he you know playing it's playing god again right Mm -hmm. um and then in in jurassic park i love that there's a picture of oppenheimer on um nedry's computer oh right oppenheimer being one of the the people who worked on the manhattan project to you know test atomic bombs and i think um oppenheimer had some regrets i don't know how you know, if we can paint him as a as a dr frankenstein necessarily and i don't know a whole ton about his his feelings but there is that famous line he talked about how 
you know, when they saw this thing that they created, he felt, he quotes them like Hindu scripture that they've, you know, he feels like they've become the destroyer of worlds. And, uh, and I guess that maybe that does make him pretty akin to Dr. Frankenstein in that um, the moment that Frankenstein created this thing, he felt that remorse. And I think that it's interesting that Oppenheimer is on, on Nedry's computer there. Um, in the prestige root, who is the, the actor playing the, the double for Angier, he mentions that he played Faust in a previous production, oh, right. which Faust is that, you know, um, German legend of, of the, the man who, you know, made a deal with the devil to have more power and, and, and knowledge and, you know, with disastrous results. Um, and then in Age of Ultron, there's so many like biblical allusions that mm-hmm. Ultron makes in that like Tony's God complex has transferred to Ultron in a way. But I just think those are fun. Yeah, I love fun. all those. Yeah. Those are great little Easter eggs of, yeah. of the similar themes. And then in terms of uh, the last little bit I want to talk about was illusions, illusions with an eye, which we had talked about briefly before. But, you know, in Jurassic Park, Hammond talks about the flea circus and how people believed it, but he knew it was an illusion and he wanted to create something that wasn't an illusion. And Sattler has that great line of, well, it, you still can't, con- you're still not in control. That, that was the illusion that you ever had control, right? Exactly. Um, but then in, in Frankenstein itself, you know, the doctor never has control. He, it's, it's the same thing, that there was never any control, that that was the illusion. Um, and then in Prestige, obviously, everything's constantly spinning out of control. They're never, um, no one ever has a handle on what's going on in that, you know, on a handle on, or a handle on themselves even. Right. They're continually just battling each other. Well, and then even at the end with Angier, he never has a control over his creation, the copy of himself. Like like we said, immediately they try to kill each other, the copies, mm-hmm. because, yeah, they're out of control. Um, but what's interesting in that is that there's a lot of similarities, obviously, between Angier and Borden and Hammond, but their, their approach is like the opposite. Hammond is trying to create this illusion or he's trying to reduce the illusion he's trying to make the illusion real real. Mm -hmm. whereas with borden and with angier they even say like their greatest angier says his his goal is to fool them this idea that the audience doesn't want to know the illusion that they know it's not real but their whole thing is preserving the illusion they don't want the truth to ever come out and that's that's ultimately their downfall is that they never want the truth to come out even to the point of borden keeping it from his his own family that the illusion is you know right it's all that dishonesty because you feel like sarah i mean i would have been way more cool if that if i was like you know let her in on it right like if she knew and then if she knew they could have also told scarlett johansson's character i mean there's the potential somebody would sell them out or decide it wasn't worth it and so they keep it 100 percent to themselves borden says when he's talking to um sarah's nephew and he shows him the little pulling in coin from behind the ear trick and he says people will bug you will pester you to give away your Mm. secret but as soon as you do you're no good to them anymore yeah they'll have no use for you and he's like this you know the secret to the trick is your power like the illusion Mm. is where it's at um telling people is no good it's the illusion that gives you the power so speaking of the comparison between Hammond and Borden or like you were saying that they're opposites Mm -hmm. and they really are because Hammond is using the science to make what could be an illusion real whereas the opposite the illusionists are using their like I mean they're basically mechanical 
engineers、mm-hmm. as they are using their type of science to create an illusion. Yeah.、Um, like, especially like Cutter, that's his whole thing, is he creates these, that vest. That he wears with like the bird trap in his hand、mm-hmm. and like the crazy mechanics of the back of the vest and everything. Like, that's some crazy science that's really cool, but they're covering that up to perpetuate the illusion. Yep. Whereas Hammond, yeah, he wants the opposite. He's like, no illusions, let's do the real science to bring about the you know, real dinosaurs. Right. Everything is、uh, a show to cover up the illusion.、Um, and, and that's something I love about the prestige is this. This parallel between Borden and Angier. And we mentioned it about like、um, the idea of doubles. With Borden, it's, it's a super simple trick. It's just that they're twins and they're pretending to be one person. With Angier, he takes it to、Which、a crazy、Cutter、magical science extent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the truth is right there the whole time.、Um, mm-hmm. but, oh, but, I, but I love this parallel that with, with Borden, he is, he's the great illusionist, but he's not the greatest, like he's not a good showman versus. Yes. Um, Angier, who is a fantastic showman. For him, it's all about the show. He doesn't really care that much about the illusion in the way that Borden does.、Um, right. Because he think, wants the applause. Yeah. Which I think makes him also, you know, connects him to Hammond in a way、um, that it's all about the entertainment. So many fun thoughts on this Frankenstein. Oh, I love、narrative. this episode. This is great.、Um, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that I, I feel like we could sit and host a whole discussion panel about this topic. You're right. <laughs> There's still more you could say. There's a million different examples and stories that could be brought in.、Yep. But these were three fun ones to talk about. Well, let's close out the episode. Valerie, do you have any media recommendations? I've been very into Agatha Christie this month, be it Halloween coming up. And I don't like scary, scary things, but I do like whodunits because usually there's just the one death and you're trying to figure out who the murderer is. It's not like, it's more of a mind game than like a suspenseful, like, Everybody's gonna die any second because I don't like that. <laughs> like Agatha Christie's,、um, and then there were none, stressed me out to no end <laughs> because I knew that they were all gonna die, but I don't know when or how or why.、Yeah. That was like so intense. But, anyways, I've been reading more of the Hercule Poirot stories. and... You say that so nicely. Thank you.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyways, and Poirot, he.、Uh, I know, and then I feel like I have to say it the American way to not sound snobbish. You have to say it both ways. Yeah. And then Poirot, you know,、yeah. <laughs> instead of Poirot. <laughs> Poirot. Is、yes. that what you mean? Exactly. And then Poirot. Hercules Poirot. <laughs> But then Poirot, I really like his stories. And the one I just finished today was The Hollow, which was very good. Lots of showmanship in that one. Don't spoil it for the audience like you did for me. Yeah, I was like telling Casey the whole story, and I was like, You're never going to read this right. And he's like, No. And I was like, All right, I'm going to keep talking about it. <laughs> you do that a lot. Well, I'll ask, Oh, what's that about? And then you tell me the whole story. And、yeah. it's like, I just wanted like the log, like give me two <laughs> sentences, like, like tease me, like give me the book blurb, not the synopsis.、But、Once you ask me about a book, I want an immediate book club discussion, Casey. I know, I understand. It's just a, it's just a cute thing about you. <laughs> It's not a bad thing.、It's、I can't、funny. help myself. Once you open the flow, it's like talking about movies we watch or whatever. It's like idea after idea after question after question comes to mind and they all just need to be discussed.、Yeah. But yes, so The Hollow by Agatha Christie. I would recommend. Good timing for Halloween. I'm going to recommend Halt and Catch Fire. It's a TV series. It was on AMC, but it's on Netflix now. I finished it a bit ago and I meant to mention it, but I always have. I always have plenty of media recommendations, but I, man,、oh, I.、Yeah. That's the one I caught pieces of, right? Yeah. And yeah. I like really pushed through that. Like, that sounds like I didn't like it. Like, I just, 
I binged it in a way that I, I'm not a super bingey type of mm -hmm. watcher, but I mean, it's good. I loved Halt and Catch Fire. It's, uh, it's about, you know, it's like a fictional take on the rise of personal computers and, but the, the focus is on these amazingly flawed characters. All the main characters are Would very, you say they're Frankensteins? very flawed. Whoa. Because even from the little bit I saw, they yeah. definitely felt like Frankenstein. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. But Halt and Catch Fire is probably a bit of a Frankenstein narrative. Um, my uh, brother Ryan really loves Halt and Catch Fire. And, right. and he was correct. It also has the best intro theme song ever. That was one where I liked when you would just tell me what happened. Because I wanted the story without all the drama. It is very dramatic, for sure. There's a lot of drama in it. And I'm... Um, I, I'm back and forth on whether I like super dramatic stuff, but um, I really loved Halt and Catch Fire, so it's worth a shot. Uh, homework. Do we have homework for future episodes? Homework. We will eventually, at the end of the year, be talking about The Good Place, all yep. things The Good Place, but especially this final season. Yeah, especially like the last two episodes. We have a lot right. to say about We want to talk about endings. Which we thought was fitting for the end of the year. So that gives you from now middle of october to end of the year to finish up the good place yeah or start it if you've never watched it before it's my I favorite mean, show on tv so same or ever same. my favorite show ever so watch yeah it. we could easily i mean we just rewatched them all not that long ago we're always and then we watching had, it i know and then we had to pause and wait for the fourth one to come on netflix yeah the fourth, se fourth season is just now getting to netflix so now's the perfect time to Watch, watch all four all. seasons there's not a ton of seasons the se the series doesn't four. get away from itself it was always planned and we'll talk about this but yeah planned watch, endings watch the good place we want to thank our newest patrons nora and robin Thanks, hey guys. friends welcome to elsewhere if you want to give a super shout out on the show i said there was a lot of sibilance sibilance super shout out just head to wbne.org in the top corner, there's a little button for super shout out. And we'll say what you want us to say on the air as long as it's nice. We're nice people. We only say nice things. If you could give us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would definitely help our show get to more listeners like you. And if you don't have iTunes or Apple Podcasts, just pick your favorite episode and recommend it on your personal media accounts. We would really love that and appreciate it. And speaking of social media, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at elsewhere underscore pod. Our cover art is by Vaishan Brandon. You can find his graphics on Instagram at graphite.vmb. Hello from Elsewhere is a proud member of WBNE. Visit WBNE.org for more fabulous podcasts like Bacon and Eggs. Yeah, they even have episodes on all the movies we've talked about today. So go find the episodes on Jurassic Park and The Prestige and Avengers Age of Ultron. Here's a promo. Howdy, Yokes. I'm Tyler Carlin. And I'm Ethan Edge Hill. And we host Bacon and Eggs, a movie lover's podcast. It's the most roll your eyes, I've seen it before concept for a show. But with new hosts, I promise. Each week, we sit down together and watch a beloved movie. We start by looking at some critical and concrete points and let our conversation flow from there. We've covered all sorts of movies, from Jaws to Little Women. From the Lego Movie to the Lego Movie 2. From Marvel to Star Wars. From Back to the Future to Back to the Future Part 2. And tangents from our frustrations with fast food. To discussing our fear of the Mighty Loon. So if you want a podcast that makes you laugh, download Bacon and Eggs, a movie lover's podcast. With new episodes available every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts, and now on WBNE.org. Ghostbusters 2! I, I, my, my hope and dream was that you would say that. We're in a mad scientist laboratory. Are we the scientist or the creation? No, we're just hanging out. 
but the lightning is getting pretty heavy. Four level of lightning. I was going to say, like that Tesla experiment where all the people are like peacing out. Yeah, there's a lot of it's lightning looking in here. dangerous. So we got to peace out because it's looking dangerous. Well, happy lightning beeps. Happy lightning beeps. <laughs> <laughs>